All right, we're in Ephesians, in case you haven't been with us. We've been in Ephesians for, well, we're, we're going even. So two for one, two for two, five weeks now. We're going on week six. And Ephesians, just as an overview, is kind of this, it's really a pretty grand book. Even though it's only six chapters and it's short, it's kind of divided right down the middle into two halves. You have this grand scope this, this grand plan of, of God, of, of reconciliation, this cosmic uh, scope for what he has done through his son to, to bring creation in its entirety back to himself. In particular, Paul has looked at in, in chapters 1 and 2 and in, in, in 3, the, the reconciliation and, and the bringing together of two groups of people, namely... The Jews and the Gentiles. So as we've looked pretty in depth, two very different uh, classes, two very different philosophies of living, and, and what Paul has done in much of his ministry and, and what he's been tasked with through the Spirit is to bring the gospel and this, this mystery, this good news of Christ and, and his way of the world to the Gentiles, and in so doing, to to eliminate essentially the what we would consider the Jews and the Gentiles, and, and as Steve said a couple weeks ago, kind of merges into this one group, this new thing that we call the church. So it's this grand, overarching, through one through three, cosmic. This is my redemption of the world. And then, for a sneak preview, in 4 through 6, he kind of takes it more specific. It gets out of that, that grand narrative down to a, a more specific, this is what it looks like for you to live this out. This is what it looks like for you to walk with wisdom before unbelievers. What it looks like for you to have submission to one another. What it looks like for you to live in unity and, and to live out this reconciliation in your relationships. You know, whoever that's with. With God, in your marriages, in your work lives, you know, with your friends. So it goes from this grand scale of cosmic redemption to the smaller, this is what it looks like for believers to walk, walk this out. In Ephesians 3, we're going to look at the, the last half. Steve went over the first half last week, it's really this point of transition, this, this look at um, Paul's kind of looking back and he, he's putting this all in perspective and he's praying for the Ephesians. He's praying really in the grand cosmic scale of things. He's praying for us, for believers, that we would be able to take this, this grand thing and we would get it, that it would make sense to us, that it would take root in our hearts and that God would be able to empower us to understand and to grasp such a thing that's beyond us. So we're going we're gonna to dive right in. We're going to look at 14 through 21. All right. Ready? Go for it. Okay. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is loaded. This prayer is just chock full of stuff we don't normally pray about. We pray about, you know, help so-and-so to get sick or help so-and-so to stop doing drugs, you know? We, we have, we tend to, as a people, have this kind of shorter view of things. And what Paul's going to try to help us do here is to lengthen that view. So let's just start from the beginning. For this reason, that goes back to chapters 1 and 2. Because of this cosmic reality, because of this reconciliation, this unity, this access that we have, not as Jews and Gentiles, but as the church, because of this access that we have through Christ to God, Paul says, because this is real, because of this great love, because of this reconciliation, because of his position as a messenger, and as Steve said last week, as as a peddler of this mystery, he wants to ask God to draw us into that, to help us to understand. He goes on to say, I kneel before the Father. And actually, this is, this is pretty interesting. It's kind of easy for us to gloss over that because, you know, you just think, well, we kneel when we pray. But in reality, um, that's not necessarily the norm of the time. The norm is, is really standing when you pray. And only in dire circumstances do you really see people kneeling or, or bowing in prayer. There's a few noteworthy occurrences of this that I want to kind of look at to frame and put in perspective what Paul is doing here, what his position is. So the first is when Jesus, after Last Supper, and when he knows this is about to go down, he knows he's about to get arrested. He knows what's coming. This is when he he retreats. He kneels before God and asks. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me, Yet not my will, but yours be done. It's this dire circumstance. He knows what he's getting into, and he has to place himself before God in an uncustomary position of submission. The next is actually uh, an instance with Paul. He, after going on a missionary journey, he's drawn by the Spirit back to Jerusalem. He's going through all of these cities, and as he's hitting them, the Spirit is telling him, you're in for hardship. You're going to get arrested. This is about to turn south for you, but I need you to, to obey and, and, and be willing to go through that. So he's, he's swinging by, and actually, at this point, um, he's trying to avoid going back into, into Asia, but he calls the Ephesian elders to come meet him, and they get together, and he basically tells them, look, I'm never going to see you guys again. Like, this is not going to go well for you to remember everything I've told you. So he, he kneels when they pray and they get down. It says, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement 
that they would never see him again. So again, it's, it's just a, a dire situation. It's, it's uncommon. So what, basically what we want to get out of that is this is something to be paid attention to. If Paul's getting on his knees to pray for us in this circumstance, it's important. Goes on to say, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. There's actually something pretty interesting here that doesn't quite come across. You get a little alliteration with father and family, but in the Greek it works out a lot better with uh, just the derivation of the words. Family is, is a derivative of father. Um, it, it builds this idea of the family coming out of the father. I think in our culture we get some of that, right? We think... You know, the, the father is, he's your father. Of course, you came from him. But I think a lot of times we don't get the full measure of that because of our, our cultural understandings. Often father becomes, in our minds, especially in the context of prayer, more of like, um, more of like a daddy, an affectionate term. There's intimacy there. There's like, you, you think Abba Father, right? On the other side of that, though, Especially in this culture, it wasn't just affection and intimacy. There was this idea of authority in, in the fatherhood. The father was sovereign over the family. He directed the course of the affairs of the family. He's who you go to to say, hey, we need to make a decision. Which way should we go? Hey, I need this. He doles out the resources, right? So there's this recognition of the sovereignty of the father. And I think it's helpful to see that. In this, to see Paul is kneeling. He's in a position of servanthood. He's in the position of a, of a slave begging from a master. With that, he goes on, you know, when, it, when he's saying he has placed his name and his value on them. They are associated with him. Kind of like Larry was talking about, that image of God, the Imago Dei. God has, has put that into the hearts, into the the entirety of creation. So in acknowledging that, Paul's laying out this framework of this is who we're going to. The Father, the source of everything. That he's good. That he's perfect. We, we didn't sing that song on accident, you know. I plan the sermon and I plan the songs, right? So it wasn't an accident that we sang that. We have a loving and gracious Father. He knows everything. He sees everything. And he does what is good. And we can trust him in that. So that brings us to 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches, that he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being. So the ancient Mediterranean world is kind of based on this reciprocity system. When I think reciprocal or reciprocity, I think I have a membership to the Cincinnati Zoo, which means I can get into the Columbus Zoo for half price because they have reciprocal relationship, right? There's this Cincinnati gives you this gift of going to the Columbus Zoo while Columbus Zoo gives their members the gift of going to the Cincinnati Zoo at a discounted price, right? There's this idea of a gift being given and then the expectation of a gift being returned. In uh, Romans 5, we're going to look at... All right, so we see kind of 
the image of God as this benefactor of this cosmic relationship of God giving this gift and us being unable to repay. It says, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. This is a lopsided relationship, right? It's all it can ever be. It can only be lopsided. So the Ephesians, so Ephesians uses this system in describing God. But its focus, I think as we'll see over and over, is in this system of God being able to gift and us not being able to repay, but him being able to enable us to have a relationship with him. He's this divine gifter going above and beyond to something that we can never live up to. I mean, that's at the root of the gospel, isn't it? So Paul prays, Out of his glorious riches, may he strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I want to take a moment just to appreciate the the totality of that, of, of, of God through the Spirit, enabling Christ to dwell in us. Just the full weight and the full measure of the Trinity being called into play here. The full attention of the Trinity being prayed for to strengthen someone in their weakness. I think we all feel that, don't we? No matter what it is for each of us, our weakness and our frailty, our lack of faith and incomplete trust, Insecurity is, is essentially at the root of our sins, right? Really, what else is sin other than our misguided attempts to, to reconcile our weaknesses, to satisfy ourselves in, in temporal, ultimately unsatisfying ways, particularly physical? I mean, that's what makes this prayer so important. There's this realization that all of this is breaking down. Our bodies are breaking down. Our intellect eventually breaks down. This all goes south. But there is this inner something. There's something eternal that can be invested in. This inner being inside of us. The essence of who we are. What Paul is praying for is that the Lord, through the Spirit, would strengthen that. That Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And that's kind of the turning point. There's this indwelling of of Christ. He comes into us. And I think the easy way for me to think about that is, oh, but didn't I ask Jesus into my heart? Well, yeah, but there's a difference between living somewhere and it being your home, right? This is kind of where Chip and JoJo take Jesus on a tour of your heart. And he's like, oh, yeah, this, this is the place for me, but this place is busted, right? But he's totally on board. He's like, shiplap, that's cool. Open floor concepts. We're gonna, there's not going to be walls left when we're done here. No walls, just a lamb beam and maybe a fireplace right in the middle, right? But the, the idea, if you think about that, and it's not like this is a new analogy, right? The idea of tearing down walls, of making something old, new, 
of making something broken beautiful again. That's not easy. That's not simple. That hurts. That's the problem, right? If we think about it, this is going to be a process. It's going to require help. It's going to require uh, experienced hands. I don't know what kind of construction you guys have done, but it's not easy. It takes a long time, especially if you don't know what you're doing or you're doing it by yourself. That's how things don't get done, right? Projects just last forever, and things just stay the way they are. Can you see that? Like, can you, you recognize that pattern of our lives in that image of incompletion, incompletion, whatever the word is? But there's this process that we need to go through, right? That's sanctification. It's this long, hard process. That's what Christ needs to do. That's why this prayer is so focused on, on God providing the endurance, of God providing the strength to allow us to see that, that long road, to allow Christ to come in and do what he needs to do. Because there is this day when Christ dwells in your heart, so much so that, that his essence becomes your essence, right? He puts his mark on you. What comes out of you is not brokenness anymore, but this beautiful thing. It, it's something that's worth putting on HGTV. His hope, or, or Paul's hope, is that the Spirit would strengthen us to, to allow that to happen, essentially. All right, let's continue. 17, last half of 17, we're going to go. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So Christ comes in and he starts rooting our hearts in love. He starts tearing out the walls. He starts rearranging reorienting our perspectives from this temporal, quick-fix, short-sighted sin, half-lies, to truth, to fullness, to everything that God is. We need that strength to even comprehend what this is, for our eyes to be opened to this thing that we're involved in. It's immeasurable. I mean, how do you know the unknowable? How do you surpass knowledge? How do we know that? I mean, we're pretty good at, at knowledge, right? That's one of our echo things. We like to dive pretty, pretty deep. I think as a church, we pride ourselves on that intellectual pursuit. But then there's this next step that's bigger than that. I think that's where the Spirit not only helps us to cognitively understand the scripture, who God is and what he's doing, but to help to bring us to that next step, to build the bridge between our heads and our hearts. It's this idea, again, of grace and love and power going beyond our comprehension. The idea that there's strength and knowledge that goes beyond our human understanding 
and is available, but perhaps not quite as we conventionally think of it. There's this difference between knowing something and knowing something, right? The point of Ephesians 3.18 is not simply to intellectually know the love of Christ in its fullness, but to also experience God's saving grace in its fullness. Knowledge in this instance is not necessarily based in our heads, but on a spiritual encounter and experience of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that I think sometimes we react against. We close ourselves off and we think that we can process all of this. But there's an acknowledgement of that mystery, of who God is, of how he works. You can function as a Christian without letting him go this far. But I think it's necessary. You can't fully function as a Christian without having both of these things. Like so much of Christianity, we're going to go to the head and the heart thing. There's this tension, right? You have... Your cognitive abilities, what God has blessed us with to be able to think. And some people are on that end of the spectrum. We naturally gravitate towards that. I like thinking about this. I like digging into this. And some of us are on the other side. Like We, we feel things, right? It's just how we operate. I don't care what the Hebrew says as long as I can know to a point that this is God's word, right? But so much of who we are as as Christians, so much of who we are as people on this earth kind of demands that we live in that in-between, right? To get the full picture, we have to touch both sides. We have to live in that tension between heaven and earth, between the spiritual and the physical, who we are in that inner being, but we can't discount entirely the physical aspects, right? In the same way, we need to find that middle ground between knowing that God is who he says he is, that he is working in our lives, that he's working in his way. It's fine to, to, to know that, but if it's not taking root, if it's not an experience, if you can't feel that God is moving, you don't have that full power to live in a way that combats sin, that blesses the world around you. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how deep, etc. I think that's a huge aspect of this, that it's a community-oriented thing. We've been over that many times here, that who we are in Christ, who we are as his people, is a collective experience as well as an individual one. So on that level, we need to assist each other. We need to be praying this prayer for each other, right? I mean, this is a prayer. This is Paul praying for these people. As a leader in this church, how can I not be praying this prayer for you guys? That we would be able to see and experience and know everything in this cosmic reality of how God interacts with us, that he is bigger than we can possibly know. That brings us to our closing here, into the, uh, the doxology. Not the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow, etc., etc. But a doxology is simply naming and identifying God, praising him, 
And then there's this, uh, this statement of, of eternity. So if we look at this, this is 20 and 21. Let's read through this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So you can see that doxology form in there. We identify God. We praise him for who he is and what he's able to do. In this case, Paul is very explicitly identifying him as more powerful and more able than we can possibly comprehend. This is a big thing. Like we said at the beginning, Paul's getting on his knees. He's, he's expressing this in a, in a dire way because this is important. But it's huge, right? So much, there's so much of that that it's just like, I, I can't imagine this going well or me being able to do this. And, and I think that's the beauty of it. It's not us. We, we need to open ourselves up to God. That Paul is praying that we are able to do that. In every case, this doxology form is pretty much a response to God's glorious work, right? To his salvation. It's our response to him and, and what he is able to do. So he's just reinforcing that, right? The idea that this is huge. Yes, this is huge. You cannot discount what God is able to do. This isn't saying necessarily, oh yeah, I get to pray for whatever I want and God's able to do whatever. We all, we all know that. Again, that's the, head, that's the head and the heart knowledge. I know, yes, that God is able to do anything. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's always going to do what we ask. That's obvious. Jesus died. He prayed right there. Take this away from me if, if you want to. You can. I know you can. Did he? No. If he did, we'd be screwed. Right? We can't know what he's up to, but we can trust that it's good. This is the prayer that we need to be praying for each other that puts in perspective our faith, really. I think it's awesome. And really, just as we end, I just want to use that as our prayer. I want to pray this over you guys. I want to pray this over our church, who we are and who we're capable of being through Christ, through the Spirit and His empowering of us essentially to receive. It's difficult to do that, to slow down. And I want to encourage us to, to try to do that, make a concerted effort, not to be gooder, not to be stronger, but to receive that strength, to allow God to do more than you think he can do on our insides, you know, who we really are. Because that's what matters in the eternal scope of things. So would you just bow your heads with me as I pray this over us? For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power 
together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.